Father, we're coming to your word now. And Lord, we need the light. The entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Lord, we need your word tonight. We need you to give us truth. And we know that your truth will set us free. And so, Lord, thank you for the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to receive it. Thank you for changing us. And, Lord, for setting us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you say with me, the word is good. Amen. You can be seated. God bless you. Good to see all of you here tonight. And it's a a good turnout for this series. And I'm calling this series, The Things You Thought You Knew. The Things You Thought You Knew. I messed up and I advertised it in my own little blog. I said, the things you thought were true. But it's the same. Things you thought were true. Things you thought you knew. That you thought were true. Okay? So, I'm going to be dealing with what we could call hot-button topics. Uh, But these are things that... uh, I'm choosing because I believe it's important that you believe the right thing. If you believe the right thing, it's very advantageous to you as a believer. You're going to grow, and it's going to set you free. The truth will always set you free. If you believe the wrong thing, it hinders you. It encumbers you. You may not know it, but it does encumber you. uh, Believing the wrong things can be a ball and chain on your feet, and you don't know it because you haven't lived without the ball and chain. So you're used to it. You know, sometimes we fellowship with suffering. We're so used to it, we can't imagine ourselves in another context. So tonight I'm going to deal with one thing that I think is really important that we understand because it's a teaching that's out there in a really, really uh, big way. There's probably not a person here that hasn't heard the term generational curse. Everybody's heard it. And... Maybe many of you have even gotten prayer for what you believe to be a generational curse. Or maybe even you went to somebody and they supposedly broke something off you or even cast something out of you. I'm going to be dealing with these things because I want us to understand the truth. You may not like what I say tonight. I hope you still love me. One of our pastors took his wife to a movie, and it was a movie, it was the opposite of a chick flick, right? It was a guy movie, and there was nothing about it she liked. So they're driving home, it's real quiet, and he said, well, did you like the movie? She said, I like you. That's a very wise response. I like you. Enough said. Um... Let's define a generational curse. A generational curse is believed to be a curse that is passed on from one generation to another generation, from a person's parent or grandparent or some other ancestor. Somewhere in your ancestry, starting with your parents back, you've gotten a curse from how they lived. A generational curse is also called an ancestral curse. The curse itself is said to be passed on by demonic or satanic forces. Generational curse proponents say that the curse may manifest itself in many different ways. Here's a few. In evil or immoral behavior. Why are you living that way? I'm under a generational curse. Failures in life. Why can't you succeed? I'm under a generational curse. Poverty. Why can't you rise above poverty? Because I'm under a generational curse. Depression and suicidal tendencies. Why are you always down? Why are you considering suicidal? Because I'm under a generational curse. It goes back to granddaddy, great-granddaddy, my daddy. Sickness and disease, another thing people attribute. Generational curses and other negative consequences. Uh, They... When you believe the doctrine of generational curses, all these things are attributed to a generational curse. Reminds me of an old song, Born Under a Bad Sign. 
I was born under a generational curse, and, and that's why I have all these struggles. That's why I just can't seem to get free. That's why I've got to go beyond my salvation and get things broken and chains snapped and devils bound and all of this. A person may be led to believe that all of these negative things are not his fault, but are the result of a generational curse. Remember the old Flip Wilson, devil made me do it. This one is the generational curse made me do it. That's why I think you need to really look at this belief because what it does is it gives the devil an open door into your brain to tell you the reason you can't get free is you're under a curse. And he can put you under a belief that may not be so. The person with the supposed generational curse is told several things. You need deliverance. Accepting Jesus Christ as Savior was not enough. Now we need to go on from here. Getting saved was just the beginning. Now we need to go on from here. It's taught that demons may have gained access into the person's life because of ancestral sins. He needs special deliverance that may involve special prayers. My daddy was a drunk. My granddaddy was a drunk. My great-granddaddy was a drunk. Hence, I'm a drunk because I'm under a generational curse. Most importantly... This person may need to confess the sins of their ancestors. Yeah, let me, let me confess the sins of great-granddaddy Bob to get myself out from under what he did, how he lived. Let's take some, look at some Bible verses that support the teaching of generational curses. This is the, these are the verses that people that teach generational curses will always go to and quote. And I'm going to unpack them. Exodus 25 to 6. Here you go. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. God's talking about idols. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children. Here it comes. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So they go to that first part. Look what God says. I'm going to punish the children for the sin of the parents down to the fourth generation. So there's the doctrine of generational curses. Let's, give it, let's go to another one. Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty. Here it comes. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. They go, there you go. That's the generational curse. Let's look at one more. Deuteronomy 5, 9. You shall not bow down to them, that is, idols, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting, here it is again, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So Deuteronomy 5, 9 to 10 is a repeat of Exodus 25 to 6. All right. So if this is all you read and and you walk away having already heard about generational curses, then you go, well, there it is in black and white. Uh, It's it's real. God is going to visit on me what great-granddaddy did. I'm going to pay for what great-granddaddy did because great-granddaddy did what he did and lived the way he lived, that I'm under this bondage and I must deal with the generational curse or I'm going to repeat him. I'm going to replicate him. I'm going to another him. Let me unpack it now. Now I want you to think with me. Back to Exodus 25, or 20, verses 5 to 6. The the first verse we read, let's just look at this. Think with me. If Exodus 20, verse 5, I'm going to visit the iniquity of the third and fourth generation. If that means inevitable guilt and punishment is going to be visited on the descendants of sinners up to the third and fourth generation, then the next verse, 6, must also be true. I'm going to show love to a thousand generations. 
of those who love me and keep my commandments. And that means inevitable mercy for thousands of the descendants of any faithful believer. So if five is true, six has to be true. If the bad is true, the good has to be true. But you know what experience tells us? Neither one of them are correct. I've been around a while. We've all witnessed the children and the grandchildren of righteous people get into all kinds of trouble. End up in jail, go crazy, go sideways, walk away from the faith, go nuts, live lives of heathen. The descendants of the righteous, I've, I've seen it over and over again. There's no guarantee they're going to walk with God. There's no apparent anything on their life. They've got to come to Christ just like anyone. Are you with me? Hey, the Bible tells us that even the prophet Samuel's children didn't walk with God. Well, shouldn't have the, the prophet Samuel's kids have been under this to the thousand generations? I'm going to give mercy and this and that, and they're going to be blessed? No. No, because his own sons did not walk with God. What we're going to see tonight is not what your descendants did or did not do. It's what you do. It's how you live. It's the decisions you make. So let's go on. So neither guilt nor righteousness are passed on. They're not. What the Bible actually teaches is each person will give account for his own deeds. God is a God of personal responsibility. Now, then what do Exodus 25 through 6 and the other passages teach? What are they saying? Here's what we need to note. First, the term curse is never mentioned. Not in any of the verses we read. You never see the word curse. Why did, why did we walk away going generational curse? It didn't say curse. Hello? Have you ever noticed that when you've been raised believing something, every time you read the Bible, you read into what you've been taught? You read into it. But, but we've got to get to the place where we, we read it with fresh eyes. And, and none of those verses use the word curse. Where do you get generational curse? Somebody came up with that. It's not in those verses. Curse is not there. We also note that nothing is said about Satan, not one thing, or demons, not one thing in those verses. It was God himself who would punish the disobedient. It was God himself, God himself, not a curse, not the devil, not demons, God. So what's going on in these passages is that God is clearly warning of judgment and punishment upon those who practice idolatry like their forefathers did. That's the context. It's saying that the impact and influence may be felt upon the offspring of idolaters to the third and fourth generation, up to the great-grandchildren. But the punishment only falls upon those who choose to engage in the same behavior. They don't have to engage in it because they're cursed, they choose to engage in it, and God is saying, I'm going to visit on you, and I visited on your great-granddaddy. If you do the same thing, you're going to reap what they did. Amen. So let me throw a new term out. Let me I think this term is way more valid than generational curses. Here it is, generational consequences. Amen. There's generational consequences, not generational curses. What do you mean, Jeff? Here's what I mean. The consequences are that the idolatrous behavior is learned and practiced by future generations. It's a learned behavior. It's an accepted behavior. It's, an, it's a behavior that the person individually embraces. They watch granddaddy or daddy or great-granddaddy living a certain way, and they choose to embrace the same thing. So there's a consequence because they learn from the example of their forebears. No, well, my daddy was a drunk, my granddaddy was a drunk. That doesn't mean you've got to be a drunk. Oh, no, no, no. You watched them, 
and you learn from the way they were living. And it, it did open up the idea to you, but no way you're under some kind of curse that you've got to do the same thing. You do not. Hang with me. Some of you are going, I don't know about this. Uh, I've always been taught this generational curse thing. I know. I know. But here's the thing. Scripture abundantly testifies to this fact that idolatry was passed on through the generations by learned example. That's why it's so important that when you're a parent, a teacher, any person of authority, any person that others, others look at, and we all have somebody looking, that you don't pattern a lifestyle that they will learn from and emulate if it's bad. That's, that's, the, that's the responsibility of adults to not give a bad example where a kid's going to go, wow, I'm going to live just the way, because they admire authority figures. I'm, since I'm already in trouble, I'm going out on a limb here. I don't think anybody is born homosexual. I believe it's learned behavior. That's free. Let's look at another passage. Jeremiah the prophet writes, listen to Jeremiah, chapter 32, verse 18 and 19. You show loving kindness to thousands and you recompense, here it is again, but you got to keep reading, but listen, and you recompense the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Now, that's verse 18. Now, listen to verse 19. You've got to read any verse. There's a context. A text without a context is a pretext. Okay? So what comes after in verse 19? Great in counsel, God is, and mighty in work. For your eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men. Listen, to give everyone, according to what? His ways. And according to the fruit of what? His own doings. Did you catch that? Do you hear personal responsibility coming up here? I can't blame my mess on anybody else's mess. You got your own mess. I got my own mess. Okay? The prophet Jeremiah is very clear. God deals with every person individually according to his own his own path in life. And according to the fruit of what he does. Because if it was great granddaddy's fault, how am I judged for it? The prophet Jeremiah made personal responsibility for your own sin very clear. Let, let me read more. Here's another one. Jeremiah 31, 29 to 30. In those days... They will say no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape and the children's teeth are set on edge. Do you catch the, the, the metaphor here? The father, it was a saying, an old Hebrew saying, and they would say, the father ate a sour grape, but it's causing the children's teeth to be on edge. In other words, they're reaping what he ate. Okay? Jeremiah said, you're not saying that anymore. He said, but every one, Every who? Every one. Shall die for his what? Own iniquity. Every man that eats the sour grape, his teeth are the ones that are going to be set on edge. Not the kids. The Living Bible puts it this way. It's a paraphrase, but it's a good one. Here we go. The people should no longer quote this proverb, children pay for their father's sins. For everyone shall die for his what? The person eating sour grapes is the one whose teeth are set on edge. Could that be any more clear? Is there anywhere in the Bible telling me that I can blame my mess on great-granddaddy? Now Moses indisputably lays down this truth in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. 
Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Is this clear? Can we just go to the Bible here? We're going to the Bible. Not what we've heard. This clearly teaches that sin or iniquity is not passed on from father to son. Or from one generation to another generation. The son shall not bear or answer for the iniquity of the father. There's no passing on of any curse. It never says that. If it never says it, why do we? (sighs) Track with me. Let God be true and every man a liar. I'm just reading the Bible to you. Now, the New Testament teaches the same thing. That's Old Covenant. Let's go to the the New Covenant. Romans 2, 5 to 6. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, he's talking to the Jews here, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 6, God will repay who? Each person according to what? What they have done. And again in Romans 14, 10 to 12. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat alone. Now let me tell you who's not going to be at God's judgment seat when you and I face Christ. Dad, granddad, or great-granddad. They're not going to be there going, well, part of the reason they were one great big mess was because of me. No, we will all stand alone. And what does he say? As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess or will acknowledge God. Now look at verse 12. So then who? Each of us will give an account of who? Ourselves to God. Who are we going to give an account for? Ourselves. Could that be any more clear? Right? God's not going to say, well, you partially got to give account for yourself. But I understand you had a lot of generational curses you were dealing with. And part of the way you lived the way you lived was because of great granddaddy. So I get it. So I'm cutting you some slack there. No. 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 Thank you. Amen. Each person has an individual responsibility before God. We all do. Everybody will give an account for his own deeds. We're we're not going to be able to blame blame ancestors or any sin caused by so-called generational curse. It's nowhere in the Bible. Listen again to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time. Here's the way we were. We gratified the cravings of our flesh and we followed our desires and thoughts. Like the rest of the world, we were by what? Nature, deserving of wrath. Why do you and me sin? Why did we live a life of sin and not a life of righteousness in the natural? Why did we need a Savior? Why did we need the Holy Ghost to come live inside of us? Why did we need a brand new Uh, uh, creation on the inside. Why did we need to be born again? Because we were, by nature, children of wrath. Our nature is why we sin. Not granddaddy. Our nature. We did it just fine all on our own, thank you. We did what we did and we do what we do regarding sin because of our own flesh and Adamic nature, not because of what granddaddy did or grandmama, whoever. When Adam fell, you know, you've heard me preach this over and over, but when Adam fell, we fell with him. We're naturally bent towards sin. Nobody has to teach us to sin. We lied all on our own. We, we stole things. We, we, we gossiped. We did all kinds of things, all on our own. Nobody had to sit us down to sin school. 
and say, let's do sin school 101. Here's how you sin. No, we needed to be delivered from it, not introduced to it. No one is in bondage to his ancestors' sins. He's in bondage to his own sins and got to repent of his own sins. James confirms this. James 1, verse 14. Every man is tempted. How many of you can say that's right? All right. Now, when he is drawn away of of what? His what? Own lust and enticed. Then when lust conceived, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Notice James doesn't say, yeah, you're, you're, you're drawn away by your own lust. Unless, your own lust, unless you're dealing with a generational curse, then it has nothing to do with your own lust. You are under bondage to do this certain thing because you're under a curse. Eh, it's not there. The results or the effects of sin are not handed down to descendants, genetically or spiritually. Children may follow or be influenced by the bad examples. The bad examples of their grandparents or their parents, authority figures, whomever. So there's not generational curses, there's generational consequences. Children or adults follow all kinds of people so easily. You know, half our church could tell me more about Taylor Swift's love life than the Bible. And you watch people like that. And because somewhere along the way, she so uh, supposedly said she was a Christian. Really? I don't care what they say. I look at what they do. Okay? Now, I don't know if Taylor Swift is saved or not. I'm not God. But I do look at behavior. Listen to the great news we find in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Let me give you some good news. Therefore, if any man be in Christ... He is, everybody say it with me, a new. Did it say he's kind of new? Or he's kind of on the way to new? No, he says he's new. A brand new creation. Bang! Just like that. The minute you get saved, bang! New creation. Greatest miracle on the planet. Bang! I go from lost to found, death to life. Blind to sight. Hell bound to heaven bound. Bang! In a microsecond, I'm born again. And look what he says. Old things are gone, passed away. Does he say some old things? All old things. Behold, all things. How many things? All things are become what? New. Does Paul say he's a new creation except for the old carryover generational curses he still needs to deal with? If it were true, why wouldn't he say that? If it were true, why is it not there? Not one time in all the New Testament. Hear me clearly. We're coming towards the close, and I am going to take questions. I'm, I'm going to be that bold tonight. I am going to take questions, so if you're getting a question, get ready and fire it my way. Okay. But listen carefully to this, because what is our source of truth? Is it our experience? Is it our emotions? Is it what somebody who we respect taught us? What is our source? Is it the culture? <laughs> no. Our culture is insane. I'm not going to be informed by my culture. But what's your source of truth? See, some people, if they were telling the truth, they would say, it's my experience. I've experienced Deliverance from generational curses. I'm not raining down on what you believe is true. I'm really not. But is experience a truly valid source of truth? Because let me put it this way. Can experience be wrong? Of course it can. Experiences come and experiences go. Emotions come and emotions go. What's our source of truth? It's the Bible. Can I, are you all with me? What is my source of truth? Let God be true and every man a liar. If it's not in the Bible, it's not true for me. 
I measure everything up against the Bible. And if the scriptures don't validate what I'm hearing, then I question what I'm hearing. I don't care how real the experience is. Okay? So, not one time in all the New Testament do we find the teaching that Christians, once born again, need then to deal with generational curses in order to be truly free. If that was true, wouldn't Paul have said it? Wouldn't Peter have written it? How about James, John, or Jude? Wouldn't they have said it? Something that crucial? A believer in Christ has the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. He has no condemnation. When we accept Jesus Christ as Lord, we're set free from all curses. Some of y'all aren't sure about that yet. I'm doing my best here tonight. We're a new creature. Old things are passed away. All has become, how much? All has become new. My Bible tells me that Jesus destroyed Satan. He said, having disarmed. Jesus disarmed the powers and the authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them through the cross. On the cross of Calvary, the Lord Jesus triumphed over principalities, powers, demons, devils, Satan, death, hell, and the grave. And he redeemed us by his precious blood. And when he did, we were set free from all curses. Believers are complete in him. Here's my statement. Satan has no legal claim upon the person who has accepted Christ. There's not a single shred of biblical evidence to support the idea that anybody anywhere ever sins or otherwise has hardship or negative things in their life because of a generational curse that makes them or forces them or coerces them into a particular sin until they get out from under it. I'm going to give you the granddaddy, speaking of granddaddies, of all verses that tell me the generational curses is a bad doctrine. Because if you believe it, oh, my granddaddy was in prison. He, you know, he, he raped somebody. You know, he was a hellion on earth. And that's why I believe I'm the way I am. Don't you see the door that the devil has into your life if you believe you're subject to the way a descendant of yours lived? It's a false doctrine that teaches people they're bound to do the wrong they're doing because of what their ancestors did. Here's the passage, Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse. Can we say it together? Y'all are real quiet on me. Let's do it. Christ has redeemed. Let's personalize it. Instead of us, say me. Christ has redeemed me from the curse of the law, having become a curse for me. For it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. Here's what the Message Bible puts it like this. Christ redeemed us from that self-defeating, cursed life by absorbing it completely into himself. Do you remember the scripture that says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree? That's what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He became a curse and at the same time, read the last three words, dissolved the curse. So here's the question we walk away with. Regarding generational curses and being free of them, is it something that's done or that I yet need to do? If you say to me, well, I think I yet need to to do it, then I ask you, show me the verse. Because every verse we've read says done, done, done. 
So, in the, the truth, more this. We need to apply and believe and walk in what Jesus has done instead of trying to do something he already took care of. Come on. If Jesus has redeemed me and you from the curse and become a curse for me, how then am I cursed? By a generational curse or any other curse. When I was in um, uh, junior college, there was a coven of witches, this is true, that were in the college. They walked around in these long black capes. I'm serious. They looked like they were ready every day for Halloween. They walked around in this long black cape, and they had these satanic medallions they wore on their chest. And they were a coven of Satan worshipers. And I was young in Christ, full of the Holy Ghost and zeal. I mean, I was ready to devil stomp every chance I got. And so one day I said, I'm going to walk up to the, I could tell the leader, he was dark. Oh, he was, his eyes, oh, it was, he was, he was evil. But I said, I'm going to walk right up to him. Now I'm going to ask him what that medallion means. It was one of these stars, satanic stars. I knew what it was, but I was going to let him have it with the gospel. So I walked up to him and I said, excuse me, what does that mean? And he immediately cursed me. He spoke in satanic tongues at me. And he did this. I kid you not. I'm sitting there, you know, that's pretty serious. He actually was throwing a curse on me. That's exactly what he was doing. I didn't have to tell him what I was. He knew what I was because the Holy Spirit was upon me. He had demon spirits in him, no doubt about it. And they sensed that I was spirit-filled. So I had kryptonite in me, right? So he just cursed me. I mean, major. And all of his little coven people, they were watching. I walked away, and at first, got to be honest, at first I thought, wow, what do you do with that? And then it was like the Holy Spirit said to me, not one curse ever spoken on you can land on you because I've delivered you from all curses. I've delivered you from all curses. So you know what? I'm telling you the truth. God knows. After that day, when I passed them in the hall, he went way to the other side and dodged me. Because you know what he knew? The curse didn't land. That's what he knew. <laughs> yeah, that was a, a real memory. Now, uh, so dear church, I want us walking in what has already been done. Uh, well, I do deal with things my answer. That's fine. But you're not under a curse. Curse is a strong word. That means you've got to live a certain way. You are, gonna, you are stuck, unable to go beyond whatever it is immorality, drunkenness, drug abuse, whatever it is, you're stuck there because of a curse. You're not. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I kind of suspect we got some questions. So let me take a couple of questions. We're doing really good on time. So if you've got a question, raise your hand. Oh, here they come. They're way back there. They're all way back in the back. All right. Thanks, Pastor Jeff. I, I really liked everything you had to say. Um, I uh, think it is true, though, that, um, and you've said this, we do make progress after we get saved. Sure. And then the scripture uses the language of sanctification for that. Yes. And so I just wanted to see if you would have anything to say about kind of a comparison between the wrong way to talk about it, which, which you taught us about tonight, but mm -hmm. the the real way the Bible talks about it, which is sanctification. Yeah. Salvation and sanctification. Sanctification follows salvation. Sanctification is the lifelong work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and mind. It's, it's all about spiritual growth. And uh, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, Paul said, for instance, he said, Now may the Lord sanctify you, body, soul, and spirit. 
Sanctification means to set apart, to be set apart. Uh, it is God's way. It, the renewing of the mind is a part of sanctification. Uh, so much of what we think, until we understand what scriptures teach about generational curses, so much of what we think we're dealing with, that being a generational curse, it's not that. It's your mind needs to be renewed. Your thinking needs to be renewed. Um, most of us grew up long enough to get our brains full of stinking thinking. And it's got to be renewed. My mind is being renewed every day. And, and uh, you know, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He didn't say tr- be get transformed by getting delivered of generational curses. He said it's a process that is lifelong. You are, you are sanctified in your body. He removes you from sin. You're sanctified in your mind. He renews your mind. You're sanctified in your spirit. He, he, he purifies your spirit by the washing of water, by the word. Sanctification is lifelong. It has nothing to do with needing demons cast out of you. And I'm dealing with that in a couple of weeks. Do Christians need demons cast out? Oh, do I want to deal with that. And I'm going to. Uh, But it's not that. It's that process where the Holy Ghost is making us more and more like Jesus every day until we grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ. And it happens by the lifelong process of sanctification. Thank God, the Spirit of God is called holy. That means he's going to separate you to a holy or a righteous life. But it's, it's a process. And it takes a lifetime. Amen? So, I hope that helps. Let's go here. Okay, hey, Pastor Jeff. So, my question is the true way to be baptized. So, I had came across this lady, and she was telling me that she comes from a Pentecostal background. Mm-hmm. And she had showed me the difference between Matthew 28, verse 19, where it says, yeah. Be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. But then she showed me uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, where it says that Peter says, In the name of Jesus. Yeah. So why is there a difference? Yeah, because first of all, if I baptize anybody tonight, I put you down and said, in Jesus' name I baptize you, or I did it in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, you're still baptized. I'm not going to split hairs over that because the Bible does not. When you say baptize in Jesus' name only, what does Jesus represent? You're talking about in the authority of, and in the message, and in the truth of what Jesus represents. And that includes God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, Colossians says, in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the whole Godhead, bodily, bodily. So, uh, it's not that you're not baptized right if you weren't baptized in Jesus' name only. It's just, it's either or. Jesus represents Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But you can't do away with Matthew 28 because Matthew 28 28 is clear as a bell. I've read it in the Greek language. It's there, full technicolor. Baptizing them, and this is out of the mouth of Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But if you baptize in Jesus' name, it's just as good. It's the same thing. When you go down... You're, you're burying, it represents burying the old life of sin that Jesus removed. Brought up, I'm raised to walk in the newness of life that Jesus made possible for me. So, whether I do it in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, or in Jesus' name only, I'm still baptized good. I'm not going to go get rebaptized because somebody did it wrong. Right? So, so uh, because I've had these calls on the radio. If you're raised in Pentecostalism, uh, especially certain uh, sects of Pentecostalism, is Jesus only. And you've got to be careful there because they don't go with the Trinity. Jesus only, I, I do think, is false. There's a word for it, and it's called modalism. And modalism is there's not three distinct persons in the Godhead which I believe there are, the God, the Father, 
God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All of them are at Jesus' baptism. The Son of God went into the water. God the Holy Ghost came down like a dove on his head. God the Father said, this is my beloved Son. All three are there. Okay? So, modalism is there is God and God the Son and God the Spirit are simply emanations or different manifestations of the one God. And they do away with the personhood of God the Son and God the Spirit. And that's modalism. In other words, one mode. There's, there's one God. There's, it's a manifestation, not real persons. Now there, you're dealing with a different animal. But as far as water baptism, if you want to baptize them in Jesus' name, good, they're baptized. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, good, they're baptized. Okay? Okay? Okay, thank you, Pastor. I hope I can get this right on my question. So if a person accepts Christ, they're a new creation yes. in Christ. Yes. Christ has paid all our sins, past, present, and future. Yes. Now, when we stand before God and we're going to be judged by our, our sins? No. We're going to be judged because, you know, it says that we're, that we're going to be and uh, we're going to stand before him in the judgment seat of Christ. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. So how is it that we're forgiven, but yet he's going to judge his children still? Because he's going to judge our works. If you read 1 Corinthians 3 very carefully, it's our works that are going to be judged uh, because we won't answer for sin because the blood has washed our sin away. Right? But we will answer for what we did with our life, with our gifting, with the time God gave us, with the opportunities he provided uh, how much fruit did we bear? You know, the, 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 in Mark uh, 13, there's the parable of the sower. Only the last one bore good fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. So I'm going to answer, I, Jeff, will answer for how did I respond to God's call on me? How well did I teach? Did I rightly divide the word of truth because the teacher will receive more stripes? Um, did I take advantage of the opportunities he gave me? Did, did I bear fruit? I'm going to get a reward or not for how I lived. But he won't say, now about that lie you told when you were 15. No, I ain't going to hear that because that's washed under the blood. Does that help? 1 Corinthians 3. Read it. In a, in a paraphrase, read it. And a good version, and it'll help you. All right, any more? One more question, any more? Yes, sir. Stephen. I knew Stephen would get in trouble here tonight. And... All right, go ahead, Stephen. Uh, yes, uh, I really appreciate your, your message today. Um, I believe in the book of Deuteronomy, you, you mentioned the scripture how the, the children wouldn't pay for the, the sins of the father. But I wanted to ask you about the book of Joshua. You'll have, after the, the battle of Jericho, there's a man, I believe Achan. Achan. Who took silver and hid it in his tent. But yet I believe Joshua took him, his sons and daughters, all the animals as well, and stoned them and, and burned them with fire. And I just wanted to ask, what was your take on that? Was it just a blip, what they shouldn't have done? How would you explain yeah. that? There is, uh, first of all, you got the major responsibility of a parent uh, to live right. But that said, you will find, it's very interesting to me, that some of the writers of the Psalms were sons of Korah. Okay? It was Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. That, uh, and Achan. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram rebelled against Moses and the earth swallowed them up. Achan, earth swallowed them up. Uh, I believe there is a verse, and I'm going to have to look it up. I'll check it out. But that perhaps the children of Achan weren't killed. But I need to check it out. I need to, because I can, I can, I can 
confuse it with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram because it also says their families were swallowed. But later we see the sons of Korah wrote some of the Psalms. So I need to check that because I think there was a mercy extended to Achan's children, but I need to check, okay? The overall principle, though, is clearly delineated that as far as answering to God and coming under some curse, that is not something that happens in the Bible. That is not something God visits on us. Because over and over again, the passages said so. That example, I need to check. But I don't believe, even if they were, did die with Achan, I don't believe they answered for his sin in eternity. I don't believe they did. Because they didn't do it. Unless they helped him hide it. And the Bible doesn't say they did. So, Okay? All right. Let's stand together, can we? Now, next week, oh boy, am I dealing with a doozy. How many of you have ever heard of the Nephilim? Raise your hand if you've heard of the Nephilim. Let me see. Raise your hand if you have not heard of the Nephilim. Oh, my. Okay. Come next week and hear about the Nephilim. Uh, Because is it true that fallen angels came down to earth, married up with earthly women, and produced children that were hybrid humans, half human, half demonic. And they became giants. This is a very popular teaching out there. Uh, I'm going to tackle it next week. Okay? And I'm going to need some people to protect me up here, I feel pretty sure. So, anyway, let's lift our hands to the Lord, can we? Can we just say, Lord, thank you, I'm free. Thank you, I answer only for me. And I don't live out my descendants' sins. No, I've been set free in Jesus' name. Amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise. Let's sing a couple of... Go ahead, Ronnie. I am free. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Lord. Come on, everybody, sing it now. No longer bound, no more change holding me. My soul is resting. It's just a blessing. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I'm free. Oh, that's good. God bless all of you. Have a good night. We love you. Amen.